0: Barrelman was right before interbike and we were going directly from St. Catharines or from Niagara, uh, to the airport. And we had like, we had to go, there was no time to waste. And I didn't even shower before getting on the plane, uh, which is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I had to grab my bike cause we did the relay and I had to grab my bike basically as we were entering transition. Um, so, John had made a comment about uh, swim bike people could hand off their bike to someone else so they didn't get it caught in, um, in transition, and it was unclear whether or not that applied to relays as well. Um, but the Triathlon Ontario officials didn't like that and uh, disqualified us, so they took it very seriously. <laughs> Would you have won? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone. And welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And for this episode, we have someone who's actually uh, a very well-known figure in the endurance sports industry and someone that I just happen to run into in random places like Kona or Las Vegas or triathlon events in Ontario. And that is Steve Fleck. He's, uh, he's someone I was introduced to probably close to 10 years ago when I got involved in triathlon through Multisport Canada. And hearing his voice reminds me of running towards the finish line with that last gasp of breath and just putting everything I had out on the race course. So it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And yes, meeting people in random places is one of the special privileges of of what I do as a race and event announcer, working at, at races and events, running, cycling, triathlon, all over North America and uh, being at start lines, being at finish lines. And and being part of the whole experience, uh, race and event announcers were um, were part of that experience—the uh, delivery of of races and events—and and making it special, you know, for each each and every participant. Uh, helping out with sponsors, you know, helping out with the operations—it's a multifaceted uh, role, but it's it's really really important. And it's become increasingly important, uh, as I mentioned, as events make it more about the experience. And this is
0: something that I think a lot of people may not appreciate until they hear an event that doesn't have an announcer, where there's just this dead air and it doesn't have the same atmosphere. But I know every time you were involved in an event, it was just incredible to listen to you because you'd pull out these stats that – uh I I have no idea how you (laughs) remember any of these things, but uh, track and field stats or triathlon stats. And you would just keep the conversation going and you keep people engaged, even though at a triathlon finish line or start line, you're often waiting around for quite a while. Um, and people have a lot of nerves and they're, you know, they're trying to keep their mind from racing. So you were with this calming voice that kept people focused and, and kept the event going. Um, so it's a very difficult job. And I, especially now that uh, that Michael and I are involved in the podcasting world, uh, I have a huge respect for what you're able to accomplish.
1: Well, a lot of it is is, is ad-libbing, uh, Andrew, and, and you and Michael have probably learned that uh, technique and skill doing something like, like a podcast. But uh, there is hard research like and, and data and information uh, that I have have to gather you know going into you know a a typical racer event uh, particularly if it's a new one it's a client i haven't worked with before or say it's high level uh track and field commentary i'm doing for for live stream uh for for some of the clients i work with in that in that way the expectation there is is that you know high level live a live stream commentary now it's it's like tv so there's expectation that you as the announcer the commentator uh, the expert analyst, whatever role you're playing, you have a depth of knowledge of whatever you're talking about. And that can be, you know, a 5,000 meter run on the track or the pole vault uh, or a triathlon or a track cycling race. So you have to know the information and, and speak knowledgeably, you know, about it. So it does take some research. Now that stuff starts to pile up sort of in your brain uh, and then you have it there. And that's, that's the sort of the gift of being able to ad lib and just fill time. And as you, as I'm sure both of you know, storytelling is a very potent thing in our in our world right now. It's potent in 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 marketing. It's potent uh, in the event world, and it's it's potent here in the podcasting world. I mean, people love to hear stories. So so having those, uh, having that data, that information is important, but also having a wealth of experiences to draw on and then create stories out about that to get people's attention uh, is part of what I do.
2: Yeah, I know you're you're spot on about storytelling because it's, you know, you can you can throw facts and figures and stats at people and they're they will their eyes will quickly glaze over, but if you can put it in a in a relevant uh, case study or an anecdote then that then that hits home. That makes a ton of sense.
0: And I think even looking at your own perspective, Steve, being an accomplished athlete yourself, it's given you that perspective where you can relate to these people, where you have done a lot of triathlons before. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you competed back in Kona, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I had the uh, privilege of racing in Kona twice. Um, I'm almost in a completely different era for the sport. This is back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And I'll fully admit to you too, Michael, I know you're, you're a coach and Andrew, you're involved on, on the product side and uh, the technical side, but I mean, back then, I'll be honest with you, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> it was just, like, it was just train absolutely as hard as you can for as long as you can, throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. And, you know, sometimes it didn't work. You know, sometimes we trained too much. Sometimes we didn't train enough. Like, whatever the case may be, we figured it out as, as we went along. But now, you know, the modern sort of endurance sports athlete, the modern triathlete has all this sort of accumulated data, information, experience to draw on. You know, back then, being an athlete, you know, in a sport like triathlon back then, it it was really about the journey. It was about the exploration, the personal journey, the personal exploration. How far could I go? Could I actually ride my bike, you know, from here to there? Like it was as simple as that. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of yearn for that. That simplicity, you know, in, in this day and age where we're so like data and information driven, it's like, hey, you're just riding your bike or you're running, you know, from A to B, or as I, as we were talking about, you know, early before we got on here with the formal interview, we were talking about running from uh, the ocean to the top of Mauna Kea. Like who cares about the time or or the, your heart rate or your data information, the goal is running or cycling from the ocean to the summit of Mauna Kea, full stop, that's it and it's much more sim it's much more finite it's much more simplistic and i think that was a big driver for me you know back in back in those days
2: well i will say as as you know a fairly evidence based coach that even with all of our all the all the advantages and uh, advances in sports science and all of the technology that's available to us these days we still make all those mistakes you know and probably you know maybe even more so because we we sometimes forget to listen to our bodies like you guys had to do because that was really your only your only intensity metric is how hard this something felt how tired you were at the end of it um so there was a little bit of a you know of a swing ab- in in that direction I think in uh, in some of the you know some of the smarter, <laughs> I would say, coaches, um, paying attention to all a lot of that subjective metrics um, information and and using that in, in still coupled with the with the all of the objective stuff, all of the measured stuff, in in coming up with uh, smart training decisions. But also, you see that in sport too, right? Like you know the whole, you know the the the, the growth in popularity of of swim run, for example. I think it's a really good example of of people getting triathlon feeling a little bit stale for some people that they're they're them wanting a new adventure. I don't think it's just uh, a population of people who hate riding their bikes that are that are driving the, the head sport. It's it's people who want to do something a little bit different or or they you know the Xtri series or Xterra you know people taking things off road and doing it doing things a little bit more you know, a little bit more uh, extreme let's say.
1: Well, I think the 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 X word is big there, and and my the word X word I used, Michael, was exploration, and and I think that's (laughs) what you're seeing. You're starting to like the gravels exploding now because people are thinking, Mm -hmm. "Hey, wow, I you know, you know, I can ride on a gravel road, and it uh, there's all these new roads that I'm riding on. It's it's new and it's different. It's it's slightly different. People, the races and the events are different. So let's try this out." And, and that's, that's really getting back to my point about that journey I was on, you know, back in the na- late 1980s and early 1990s, it was about, about purely exploration, um, yeah. about how far you could push yourself, how far you could ride, how far you could run, can you swim across the lake, you know, et cetera, et cetera all that kind of stuff. But getting back to Andrew's original question, I forgot that I didn't answer that is yes, <laughs> Andrew, the, the being an athlete. And and knowing the experiences and knowing you know the training that goes into it and knowing the pain, the suffering, and the highs and the lows, yes, indeed, it really helps when you're an announcer and a commentator to have that knowledge, like in your back pocket and, and a personal part of your uh, experience package.
0: Yeah, and it definitely shines through, um, even with recent events that you've done, like um, being there for Lionel Sanders with his Canadian Hour uh, record. Um, just being able to, to speak to the challenges, the mental challenges he was going through. I'm sure he probably wasn't paying that close of attention to what you were saying, but there were a lot of other people watching and I was tuning in myself to watch the attempt. And it, was, uh, it is interesting to get that perspective and that feeling from someone who knows what they're talking about and who knows what the athlete is going through.
1: Well, racing on the track like that, it looks very simplistic. It's just circling around, you know, a 200 meter, you know, or 250 meter oval around and around and around. It looks very simplistic and simple and easy, but there's a lot going on. And it was, it behooves me and whoever I'm working with, I had the opportunity of working with with Ed Veal, the, uh, ironically, the man who held the Canadian hour record uh, before Lionel broke it spectacularly, you know, on that particular day, but it behooves you know, me to know all that, that technical information. And certainly someone like Ed, you know, having him alongside to sort of add anecdote here and there. And we put that uh, program together very carefully. We had good uh, outside production, you know, help with someone um, uh, outside Talbot Cox, who is, uh, Uh, Lionel Sanders sort of go-to videographer Talbot was super helpful he couldn't come into the country because of the COVID-19 travel restrictions but he was working from afar from his remote uh, location and then we had Greg McFadden uh, on site shooting most of uh, the video and doing the on-site production and Greg uh, he puts together a lot of the Ironman uh, race videos if anyone has raced an Ironman race and seen the uh, the pre-race videos and the post-race videos that that Ironman puts together, uh, there's a good chance that Greg has shot, edited, and produced uh, produced that. So it was a pretty uh, slick and uh, good production team that I was involved with, and 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 that was a wonderful, you know, opportunity to uh, to be involved with that, and and certainly to showcase uh, Lionel's you know extraordinary fitness. I mean, there was some doubts that he was going to. Uh, to break the record, and I think there was a bit of you know apprehension and nervousness on in in some corners about it, but I actually had confidence that he was he was going to blow that sort of out of the out of the water, and and he did. It was a very unconventional way he approached it with his <laughs> like everything he does.
0: <laughs> Fair point, yes. Uh, so not known for following the the social norms, but uh, he he approached it with this completely obscene cadence for what a lot of dedicated track cyclists would say, where he was down in the high 80s, low 90s, and that was high for him, uh, where a lot of track cyclists are 10 to 15 RPM higher. So he had to get custom chain rings made up and all this other strange equipment that was probably not cheap and probably not often requested. But he was able to accomplish it and actually eliminate some of these doubts about the physical possibility or physiological possibility of being able to accomplish it with what he had chosen to do.
1: Well, as both of you know well, I mean, and sport is ruthlessly specific and, and, you know, we can talk about doing all these wonderful things, but ultimately comes down to replicating on the day of pretty darn close to what you've done in training in preparation for that attempt, that race, that performance. And Lionel's best riding at 88, 89, you know, 90 RPM, which as you had said, Andrew is low, um, for sort of world-class level road cyclists and particularly track cyclists. So that was, those were the corners that said he's turning that thing over at 89 when he blows up, like he's going to blow up spectacularly, (laughs) but he didn't. I mean, he just kept clicking off those, those laps, like, like a metronome. He was within three or four tenths of a second for every lap that he did there except the first lap which is obviously a little bit slower as you get the bike up to speed and then he did pick it up um the last lap but he was clicking it off within two or three tenths of a second every lap that that's to me was the biggest shock that someone was so little experience of riding on the track and keep in mind gentlemen he had only ridden on the track about five or six times in grand total uh, before wow. he got there so Again, Andrew, that's that unconventionality um, mm-hmm. that Lionel kind of brings, you know, to this, and and a lot of people have their doubts. But I, I, I know that he goes to dark places, um, you know, in the physical, um, maybe even the pain spectrum that I think few other athletes will go. And and I knew when we got to the halfway point, like when we were about 30 minutes and he kept knocking out those laps at exactly the same uh, pace, I said, he's going to do this. Well, I remember
0: seeing a video of him a while back, and I, I think it was Aaron, his wife, who who took the video, but he was training um, in another room and the door was cracked open and you could actually hear him crying and sobbing at the end of an interval. And Aaron was kind of giggling, but this is kind of the the pain he puts himself through. And I think very few athletes are able to go to that, that dark place you mentioned.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's probably his greatest strength. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also his, I, I, I think speaking candidly, it's also his greatest weakness because he probably, he probably does too much of that you know in training and probably arrives at more races than he wants to uh slightly to a lot overtrained and you know he'll always perform on the day he's a gamer he'll go all out sort of on the day of but we've seen him like you know a few times you know on that that world true world stage with the best fields you know there um you know he's kind of blown up and I'm I'm thinking he kind of missed he kind of missed it and he and he overcooked himself, you know, coming in. Um, I mean, with that being said, let's let's go back and you know, just a month ago at at the Challenge Daytona race. Yep. I mean, he he only finished fourth, which you know I know he was disappointed with. He expressed his disappointment with afterwards, but fourth in that particular field and knowing again his unorthodox sort of preparation for that particular you know race and event. You know, mm-hmm. I I thought was was pretty darn good. Yeah,
2: the field was insane. That was like one of the most fun things I've ever watched on on triathlon television.
0: So speaking of watching things, um, this was very apparent when I watched the record attempt uh, as well as the the PTO race. Um, but looking at the lack of crowd, it was it's something I think everyone's gotten used to over the past year a little bit. But it's still so strange to see an event where. Uh, especially in the track where normally you see crowded seats and everyone's cheering and you get that atmosphere, but it was just an empty velodrome, and it would have been much harder to find the motivation. And I know watching the PTO race, uh, there there were a few times where athletes would run by the crowd and you'd actually see their pace pick up because they were feeding off that energy and they were taking that little bit extra. But it's so rare these days to to see a live crowd and just any kind of external influence like that at an event. So how has that changed the landscape, in your opinion?
1: Oh, I think it's changed a big time. And I think um, Alex Hutchinson touched a, a bit on this um, uh, in his book, Endure, uh, published a couple of years ago. Alex, the uh, great writer um, of books and writes for The Globe and Mail, writes for Outside Magazine, writes for New York Times uh, on topics of, of human physiology and human performance. And and I think the crowd, that input, that external uh, input is important, you know, in the performance end of things. But to your point, Andrew, this, this whole year, be it professional, like league sports, I was just watching the, uh, the world junior, um mm-hmm. hockey tournament, uh, the Canadians playing the, um, uh, the Russian team in the semifinals last night. And it's just so weird. Like there's no, there's no one in the stands and yet the game was very high level. And it's the same in our sport and endurance sports, like all these, phenomenal performances, you know, this year, be it, uh, you know, Joshua guy, you know, on the track running like world record 5,000, world record 10,000. Um, we saw Mo Farah uh, obliterate the, the world hour record. Um, we saw a woman's world 5,000 meter record. Uh, Canadian uh, Mo Ahmed, um, you know, broke the Canadian men's 5,000 meter record. These were all right. one-off like individual essentially time trial performances, you know, without any crowds or, 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 or people. So, so I don't, I, I, I understood what Alex was getting at when he's, when he was talking about and writing about an endurer and what you're hinting at, Andrew, that that, that external um, crowd input is important for performance. But then this past year, I'm, I'm wondering, we've had no crowds, like there hasn't been any, you know, for these one-off, you know, types of performances, but, but those particular athletes, were performing at their absolute best, whether running, you know, world records and Canadian records and PR performances.
2: I think there's a difference between like the 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 true world class athletes that are setting these records and, you know, Andrew and myself. <laughs> um, and and others of our ilk who are who are much <laughs> you know who are in a, in a very who are in a totally different stratosphere and who who you know operate under slightly different rules and and a little you know cheer and a kind word from a spectator can can really pick us up. I've I've certainly experienced this myself. So I I suspect that would be the the difference there.
0: And I do wonder as well if it takes some of the pressure off. Where if you're going out to an event where you know it's just you and you can focus, then you can put in that extra effort, and you don't have to get distracted by all the external things going on. Um, so that that may help some people, it may hinder others, but um, but it's certainly an impact. Because I I know I often get quite nervous before the start of a race because I feel like everyone's watching me, but I know in reality no one cares because I'm one of. A thousand or two thousand people at the start of an Ironman event, for example, uh, and no one's looking at me specifically, but you still feel that that level of nervousness, or at least I do, uh, getting in front of a big crowd, um, or even being part of a big crowd like that. So, Steve, other
2: than um, the the Lionel Sanders uh, commentary that you did, what does someone who is, you know, admittedly wearing many hats, but primarily a race MC, what does a race MC do in a year like two thousand twenty?
1: Well, it's, it's been a, it's been a tough year, Michael. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, all, all of my work and all of my income were, were eliminated in about a, you know, uh, a one month stretch of time. I mean, we, the world kind of shut down middle of March. Yeah. Um, the big one for me was when the Olympics, you know, postponed. I, I, when the Olympics postponed, I think that was, mm, I've kind of lost track of time, you know, maybe early April, mid April. Um, uh, that's that's when i that's when i kind of said the the rest of the year is going to be a write off and the situation just got got deeper and deeper and and more serious and and it's understandable in terms of the science of this all i mean um i'm not an epidemiologist or a public health uh, authority but you know random gatherings of people which is what live events are and we're the running sure. cycling triathlon you know racing event world is about about that it's about live events and it's about people randomly getting together where, whether it's 200, 2000 or 20,000. Um, and, and that's just not on right now. Um, that, that will contribute to the spread, you know, of COVID-19, unfortunately. So, so I knew that that it was kind of the end. Um, and it's been a rough year and, but I've had to pivot. Um, I've been doing more of this kind of thing. Um, I've been doing, uh, content interviews for, uh, for clients. I've been emceeing virtually sort of conferences, which, uh, which has been kind of weird, but also kind of interesting at the same time. It's, it's drawn on some, some past skills of mine. I've, I've found, I did live radio when I was at university for, for a few years. I had my own show at the university of Guelph. Oh, cool. And, and so I've drawn on some of those skills, you know, hosting a virtual event, you know, where you don't see the audience and you might not see your uh, your other panelists that you're that you're working with, so so drawing on some of those radio skills um, and just going with the flow and and making sure it's all you know uh, continuous and and has a flow to it uh, has been has been really important. So so yeah, so i have I'm I've been emceeing a, a bunch of conferences. I'm I'm emceeing um, under uh, the great Mike Riley. Mike is the main uh, MC for the Endurance Exchange Conference coming up uh, at the end of January uh, that, uh, triathlon USA is putting on. Um, I'll be working under Mike. I'll be, I'll be, uh, doing the moderating for, uh, quite a few of the breakout panels and en- emceeing some of the smaller events, but Mike, uh, yes. will be the main MC, And I'm looking forward to uh, working with Mike. He's a great friend and mentor of mine sort of in the space. And it's, it's rare that we actually get to work together. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Even though it will be virtual, I'll be working, <laughs> I'll be working here and Mike will be in his home studio in, in San Diego. So.
2: <laughs> no, that sounds that sounds great. Um, but and I understand too that you've uh, you and uh, a few collaborators have put together a uh, an industry group uh, representing race organizers. Uh, care to tell us a little bit about
1: that? Sure. Yeah. Thanks uh, uh, for that, Michael. We've put together a formal organization that that uh, has brought together the whole of the endurance sports race and events business or industry in, in Canada. It's called the Canadian Endurance Sports Alliance. And it's put all the running, cycling, and triathlon races and events across the country, uh, as I said, under one umbrella. We felt there was a need for this for for a number of uh, reasons. First of all, um, obviously, you know, in, in these times of need, races and events have had to be canceled, postponed, turned into virtual. And the, the business model for better, for worse in the space is pretty straightforward. It's a participant revenue driven business. So if mm-hmm. you can't have the race or event, if you're not allowed to put it on, you don't have uh, the participants, you don't have the rev- revenue, you don't have a business. So that's kind of sums it up right there. So it's been a really, <laughs> yeah, really...
2: Fairly straightforward, right? It's
1: pretty straightforward. So um, it, it's kind of summed up the challenges that literally every race or event from the 200 person fun run to the 20,000 plus... Um, you know, charitable charitable bike rides or, or the big running races, the big city marathons have faced this year, is that if you can't put the race or event on, you don't have that participant revenue coming in, what are you going to do? And, you know, virtual is a bit of a solution, um, but it only helps a, a little bit. So usually if you have, for easy's sake, let's say you have a thousand person uh, event, it varies, but generally speaking, this year we found you might get between twenty five and fifty percent participation on a virtual race. Oh, is that so, all it is? Huh? Yeah, it's it's not it's not super high, and it's not very sustainable over the long term. Once you've done a virtual race once, are you going to come back and do it again a second time? Um, <laughs> Only if
2: you really like the race director.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of <laughs> no seriously, it,
2: like it's it's that's what it's come down to on, on my side of things. Basically, yeah. it's just you know you you do those races to support the the RDs. Yeah.
1: It works for now, but it's not a sustainable. It's not a sustainable business model. So, so th- that that's again why we set this business and industry up. And our main focus initially was was pitching uh, the federal government in Ottawa um, for recognition and you know the hail mary, some kind of financial support. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a hail mary. We've learned a lot about government relations. We're trying to do this all on our own. We had a bit of help from a, a government relations agency early on, but now we're, we are truly doing this on our own. But we're all sort of ex-salespeople. sales uh, We're all endurance people, and we just keep going. And we've, we've actually made some some major, major inroads, you know, in you know, in Ottawa uh, with the federal government, be it the elected uh, government, the Liberals, uh, also the Conservative Party, and the NDP as well. Uh, lots of meetings with MPs uh, quite a few meetings with senior bureaucrats who work in heritage uh, sport um, tourism industry, small business, etc. It just goes on and on and on um, but the, the the most interesting thing is we with whoever we meet uh, it 's always this gee whiz we had no idea that this was even an industry or business, and the numbers we've we 've been able to sort of crunch some numbers and we 're lucky in in this in this business everything is via online. So we, we just crunch the numbers or have some spreadsheets. We're really lucky to have companies like Race Roster um, and uh, events.com, you know, as partners and involved. So we do have access to quite a bit of data. Uh, sports stats is involved. So we've been able to pool all this data and here are the big numbers. So in Canada, if you add up all the running, cycling and triathlon races and events, like in the country in any given year, we've got well over 2 million participants Holding only. Uh, okay. Yep. So we've, and nearly, nearly a billion dollars in economic impact. Again, this is adding them all up. And then here's the big one. And this is often what gets people's attention. I, I mentioned uh, charities, I think, uh, a few moments ago, uh, charitable fundraising, nearly a billion dollars in charitable funds raised. So none of that happened last year. None of that happened. And, and so now when I quote those numbers to people and I, I also talk about the the simplicity of the business model I mentioned just a few moments ago. Now we have people's attention and now they right. kind of get it. They go, Oh, Oh, now I understand. Oh, so now we're, now we're talking about the sort of the ripple effect of, of the impact. There's not a lot of jobs in the business. We don't, we're not like the airline business or the automobile business or the tourism business where there's millions and millions of um, employees. But those three numbers I mentioned, the participants, and don't forget, this is a health and fitness thing too. So it's including it's, I was gonna it's say, med- yeah. mental health yeah, uh, as well. So a big impact there. And then again, the economic impact and the charitable um, uh, fundraising. So I don't know where this thing is going to go. Um, you know, we we keep plugging away. It, it's a long process. You know, no one's getting a checkbook out, um, you know, right now for us, uh, but we do have the attention of key people in Ottawa. Uh, we do have the attention of, of Triathlon Canada, of Cycling Canada, of Athletics Canada, which running running falls under, um, and we may be in the, in the near future working cooperatively with all three of those national sports organizations, or NSOs, uh, as well. So it's been an interesting journey, and uh, we keep going. Um, people are kidding themselves if they think 2021 is going to be a return to normal, Um my gut, and this is purely speculative, is we won't see, you know, some of the mid to large sizes, races and events kind of back to normal until much later, you know, this year, like probably, you know, well into the fall. So this summer, you'll still see virtual and you'll still see these, you know, kind of hybrid time trial, you know, social distance kind of, you know, events with with very limited and capped numbers, whatever that number is. Again, speculative, 100, 200, 500, who knows, uh, you know, this summer. That's what might go on. But I don't think we will get back to what the three of us know as, uh, you know, a traditional endurance sports, larger mass participation race or event, probably until the fall.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, that's sort of people have been asking me the same question um, with some of the groups that I work with. And that's sort of the the number I give them. And I'm actually, you know, maybe less optimistic than I was before, because, you know, the big the the big saving grace here was the vaccine. And, you know, now that vaccines are are out there and being distributed. Um it's, it's the speed of the distribution that, that really plays a large role. And if we're looking at what's happening in the United States and how how far behind they are, their targets for, you know, vaccinations, and uh, um, I actually don't know how well Canada is doing. It's sad that I know the, <laughs> what the Americans are up to and not what we are up to, um, that it's not, it doesn't look like it's, it's you know, that, that those targets are going to be met. And until we have, you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling that that enough of the population carries you know some some level of immunity to this thing then yeah it's just it's not practical to have to have any kind of return to normalcy
1: well we're off to a, a slow start michael i i just was reading some some news about that before we uh, got on here and we're off to a slow start i'm assuming it's going to pick up but yeah you're right i mean having high levels of vac, again i'm not an expert i'm not an epidemiology expert or Sure. You know, vaccine expert. But I mean, it, it goes without saying that having high levels of vac- uh, vaccination within a given population um, will indirectly help live events, you know, get back going again. Uh, so that needs to happen. And it needs to happen, you know, quickly and in, you know, mass numbers, like millions and millions for it to be effective. The the other thing
0: that stays on my mind through all of this too is looking at this new variant of COVID that's supposed to be highly contagious. And I don't know if anyone really understands whether or not it responds to the vaccine or whether the vaccine does anything to help it. So that could be a wild card. I'm hoping, <laughs> really, really hoping that it is effective in that and that it helps slow the spread. But it's it's a bit of an unknown. So it could be yeah, until the end of this year or possibly early 2022 but that we see a return to normalcy.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Let's, you know, it's, it's one of those ones where you kind of, you know, we don't have the information. So we, we hope for the best and see, let the wonks, you know, in the lab coats do their thing and hopefully give us give us some some encouraging <laughs> encouraging answers.
1: Well, one of the things on that front, Michael, that that CESA, the Canadian Endurance Sports Alliance, is is doing is we are compiling a lot of case studies. Uh, we are you know putting that together in a library. Uh, we're compiling sort of return to play, return to sport, sort of best practices. That's a bit of a fluid thing right now because we don't know what like kind of numbers can get together. But I do know race directors. Uh, event organizers. These are people, these are planners and organizers. They are relentlessly planning and organizing. And I know the best ones in, you know, in the business, and I'm lucky in, in both Canada and the United States, I get to work with some of the best. I mean, they are preparing for multiple scenarios this year, multiple scenarios, everything from the way it was this year, which was like, sorry, this year, I'm saying 2020, which was Terrible and awful to like fully wide open, and probably three or four different scenarios in between. So they're planning for all of that in their sort of off season, um, you know, this year. And it's one of the advantages maybe an advantage it's also a disadvantage to the Canadian market and business in this space in that we essentially shut down for four or five months like through from you know October through until you know mid-March April depending on where you are in the country right and and so we can we have that time to plan and organize and we can look south uh to our friends in the U.S. it's a bit of a different situation down there uh than it is here in Canada I think we're much more cautious and much more um you know conservative about this than than the Americans are and I'm not you know, passing judgment on that. I'm just making an observation, but we'll be able to see what our American colleagues and friends do, you know, in the winter months in places like Florida and Texas and California, where they can, because the weather's better, they will be running events then. So we'll get a sense for what they they are putting on mm-hmm. and race directors, race organizers, owners here in Canada will be able to work on those scenarios and those plans, whatever they may be, you know, in Canada as they roll roll out. But keeping in mind, it's going to be a fluid situation. So you, you really can't predict what exactly it's going to be in June, July, August, September. Who knows? The other bit of a wild card
0: I see is how reluctant people are to get involved again, because I think we're going to have the whole spectrum of people where there, there are people who are super eager to get out there and race again, but other people who are going to be a lot more cautious about crowds for the next one, two, three years, maybe. And it, it could be it may be a bit of a slow start to to see people getting back involved in events, even when the events are approved and when they've been deemed to be safe.
1: Great point, Andrew. We won't know until we get into it. I, I think the, the good news and the silver lining is I think when we fully get back to it, whenever that is, 2022, 2023, we're going to see a nice bump in 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 running, in cycling, in triathlon, uh, you know, all these sports, because so many people have discovered them or rediscovered them. Uh, because it's all they can do. Gyms have been closed. They haven't had access to their club or, or whatever their uh, mechanism. Uh, they haven't been able to, you know, Michael, you know this. They haven't been able to get together with clubmates to to yep. train together, to train with a coach. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff has been on hold. So there is this, as you had hinted at, Andrew. There is this pent up, um, you know, demand to get to back get back together. That'll drive things. But there'll all there'll be this large group of new people that we will somehow need to engage and hopefully get them, you know, to come out to pin on a bib number, to try a, a running race, to try a, a, a maybe a charitable bike ride or a more formal sort of grand fondo or, or, or maybe even, and perhaps a triathlon. So, so there is, there is that possibility there, but we're going to have to get over a few bumps before we get there.
0: The the data that we've seen so far has really indicated that there is a large number of people getting involved for the first time because bike sales, if you've tried to buy any bike parts over the last year, uh, it's been <laughs> next to impossible. impossible. Yeah, there's, there's just zero stock. So that tells me that there's a lot of people getting involved for the first time. And that's a good sign for the industry as a whole because people, like you said, Steve, have rediscovered cycling or running or maybe less so swimming because that one's a little bit less accessible but uh and even some of the strava numbers that i i saw posted in a year end review have shown that a lot of people are getting out there there's been more Uh, More activities posted this past year than any other year, and even the month-to-month changes or the day-to-day changes they were seeing were highly impacted by the changes of lockdowns. Where I think one example was in France, when people went into lockdown and couldn't go more than a kilometer from their home, the number of running activities actually increased, where biking activities decreased. So people are adapting; they're they're getting out there, they're wanting to be active, which is a great sign. Um, but it's just a question of when, when we can all get back together and have a giant triathlon party uh, or any endurance event. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it because for me, it was, it was a bit of a, a family event too, especially going to the the Multisport Canada series uh, where every, or almost every weekend I would see people – that you know you see all summer and you catch up with them. It's like a big group of friends, and I miss that. It's uh, it's been a hard year to to not have access to that. So I really want to get back racing, and I hope lots of other people feel the same way.
2: You know what, Andrew? Though the the fact that uh, that all these people are training means that they're going to start kicking our butts um, <laughs> when we get
0: back out there in in actual race format. That is true. Yes, I, I welcome <laughs> it though. Yes, me too.
1: Extra pressure, extra pressure <laughs> for you guys. Still pinning bib numbers on. No, I was just going to say that uh, uh, you know all these all these you know new people. Um, it, it's always a good thing, you know, to have new people coming in, and and I, and I hope that you know we can convert on some of those. And and Andrew, you touched on on the social aspect of it. We can't really do it now, but. I find that it's the biggest surprise, particularly for those people who are coming new, like into into running or or or, or cycling or, or or triathlon. If they're coming in new, I think they had this vision in their head of it's this long, lonely road, and you're just out there trudging along, you know, all by yourself. But the pleasant surprise that they find out is the community and and the socialization, the the training together, the running together, the you know, the, the coffee, you know, at the coffee shop before the bike ride or the beer at the pub, you know, after the race or, you know, whatever that, that, that social interaction is, that's a huge and a pleasant f- surprise for the raw newbies coming in because they thought it would be completely different. And we can't do that now uh, because of obviously COVID-19, you know, restrictions. But I think that is going to be a bigger and more important element when we get back to it and we get back to normal.
2: I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it. you know, there's a reason why the three of us fell in love with it, you know, maybe for slightly different reasons, Steve, um, but ultimately, ultimately more similar than different, I think. Um, then anyone, anyone who kind of dips their toes, most people, I would say who would dip their toes would be would be converse. I mean, we, I think as uh, the, it's not a caution, but it's just something for us, I think, to be aware of, especially as, as people who are, you know, I'm a coach and Steve, you're an MC and Andrew's in the industry to be aware of is is to really every day, every minute of every day work on, um, you know, positivity and inclusivity. Uh, Phil Gaiman had an amazing YouTube video. I don't know if you guys watched it about um, about uh, it was just I was probably from three months ago or four months ago about the on the 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 inrush of new cyclists on the road mm-hmm. and he was he I, I'll I'll link to it because I think it's just beautiful. It kind of ca- encapsulates everything I think about it. But he basically in, in high level he said that you know, all of you new cyclists, don't worry about your sock length or what shoes you're wearing, or like if your if your kit if your shorts match your your you know your your jersey, just go out there and ride. Doesn't matter what you're riding. And then he's like, okay, now turn the video off. Stop listening. And then he's like, and then he now I'm talking to you roadies and like don't make it don't make it shitty for them. Don't make fun of them. Don't like don't give them grief for all of these, you know, forget forget your stupid rules and uh, and let them have fun. And I think that's that's a big that has to be a big part of what we do if we're if we're going to convert these people and not not you know perpetuate the uh I want I want to say myth but it's not a myth uh, perpetuate the the notion that um that cycling and maybe to some extent even triathlon is elitist and snobbish
1: well, that was a good, uh, that's a good point, uh, Michael. And I did watch that video of, of, of Phil's um, and, and I love what Phil Gaiman's doing, you know, uh, for, for cycling and and, and all that. And, and he, he did at the end there, he said, I'm talking to you, like experienced cyclists, <laughs> Yeah, don't, and I, and I know this is a family show, so <laughs> I can't know, say you can, it.
2: It's, it's, it's totally, you can, you can but, swear but on he it. But said,
1: he said, don't yeah. F this up, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> make sure you welcome these new people. so that was brilliant i thought yeah it will it will definitely be
0: interesting to see how everyone adapts to this change or this reset that the industry has had so i really hope that uh that all these people who are dipping their toes for the first time come out to a race once they can and get to experience what
1: we love so much about it Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be a race andrew though not not to contradict what you said i mean you know it's interesting in, in in triathlon Triathlon's very race and event oriented. Um, you know Graham Fraser, who founded the, the Tri Sport Series uh, in in Ontario back in in the mid nineteen eighties, and then went on to um, you know buy Ironman Canada and then expand the Ironman brand and the races all across North America. I mean Graham was was said way back then. He said, "No one swim bikes, and runs for the heck of it. Um, th- They're training." <laughs> it's true. I mean, like who would do something bizarre like that of training seriously for swimming, cycling and running and just do it because they, they want to, and it's fun. No, he said, they're, they're, they're training to go to a triathlon race. You can't have the sport of triathlon without triathlon races and events. And, and he's, and Graham was a hundred percent right on that. Whereas running and, and cycling are a bit more nebulous. I mean, you have, you've got really, you see this a lot in cycling. Um, I ride with these guys in my Newmarket market Eagle cycling club, like they could win like Ontario masters level like races, but they never pin a bib number on. So, mm-hmm. so it's a bit more, it's a bit more nebulous. Triathlon does have the congregant, you know, opportunity as you had talked about it, Andrew, um, for the family, for the friends to get together at those races and events running and cycling less. So that's more nebulous and left up to the, the individuals or, you know, perhaps the, the clubs to to facilitate that.
0: That is an excellent point. And looking around locally, um, I know that there's some fantastic rides in Alberta. So climbing up to the top of a mountain or something like that. Uh, my favorite ride nearby is going up Highwood Pass. And to be able to do that round trip from from the starting point, the typical starting point for people, that's a big accomplishment. And that's not something that involves a race. It's something that you can go out and you can do it on your own or you can take a group of five people or you can find 50 people who are willing to do it together. And, yeah, it's, uh, it is great just to see people – try those things and get involved and i do get caught up a little bit in the the triathlon mentality because like you said the sport wouldn't really exist if it weren't for the races and pretty much everyone who's involved in it will race at some point which separates it quite a bit from running which is what people often do just for recreation or just for health so it's an an excellent point you've made Steve, um, I want to thank you for coming on. I think this has been a really
2: excellent discussion. Um, really, uh, it's it's always great to get an insider's perspective on all these things. And uh, this is something that Andrew and I talked about in our in our very last show in our, our wrap up of 2020. How it's always uh, a privilege and a thrill to to get really you know knowledgeable folks on the show to to tell us their thoughts on on these subjects that are so important to us. And um, thank you for doing that.
1: Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. And uh, as we touched on it, it, it's been a challenging year. I'd, I'd be lying if uh, I, I said it it wasn't. Uh, but uh, it, we've also learned a lot. Um, and I think we've touched on some of that, too. We've learned a lot about ourselves. We've learned a lot about um, our sports, swimming, or sorry, running you know, cycling and triathlon, uh, the sports that are, are nearest and dearest to us. And I think it's created some opportunities and it's also created some some needs that uh, each and every one of us, you know, need to work on touching on, you know, that messaging from Phil Gaiman that we uh, just spoke of a, a few moments ago. We all need to sort of, you know, come together uh, to make um, to make the opportunity as big, you know, as, as we could possibly make it as we go into 2021 and, and onwards from from here.
2: I agree, and I think that you know humanity is fairly resilient. I would like to think of us anyway, um, and that this is certainly it's been it's been a dark time for those of us in the industry. Uh, many of us in the industry, anyway. Uh, but there there are opportunities, as Andrew mentioned, with uh, you know the hike and bike sales, and obviously the introduction of new new folks into the sports. There are so many opportunities. So I'm uh, I I prefer I I choose to think about things in, in uh, you know in more of a Uh, a pinkish hue (laughs) and more with with a little bit more of a silver lining um and uh you know imagine that our future is going to be bright so everyone thank you very much again for listening uh if you like the show do rate and review us on itunes spotify or wherever it is you get your podcasts and uh consider also writing a review thanks for listening